0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Hello Harvest, great to be with you again. Hope you've had a good week and are anticipating the return of warmer weather. I want to continue this morning uh, with our series on the Bible Project's Church at Home. And we're going to take a bit of a departure before we've had some of these broader Um, Theological themes that we've covered, but this time around we're going to look at a book of the Bible because this one short little book of the Bible contains some really rich and important biblical themes related to how we live out the gospel in our lives. Philemon is the shortest of the letters of Paul, and uh, and yet it is so packed, full of rich stuff. It's only, in fact, it's so short it doesn't have any chapters. It only has twenty five verses. So when we refer to Philemon 3, we mean Philemon verse 3, not chapter 3. Yet there is enough in this short letter to come up with an entire series of sermons. In fact, while I was preparing for the sermon, I did so much looking into this little book of the Bible and came up with so much stuff, I ended up having like eight points. And I knew I couldn't deliver an eight-point message without being fired from my job. And so what I did instead was I, I decided to focus on a handful of these points, and the way I want to approach it is to, to frame them in the form of questions meant to provoke some reflection. And they all center around the events that take place in this letter of Philemon, but uh, what I ask the Lord to do is direct me to the, the, which of these eight points most weighed heavily on his heart for our church to hear right now. I want to give you a brief summary of the context of this letter because Philemon, unlike most of the letters in the New Testament, were not intended to be read um, for the sake of churches to to establish doctrine, but this was one of the few personal letters recorded for us in the Bible. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a, a personal friend, a man named Philemon, who was a wealthy businessman in the city of Colossae, and he was also a church leader. And Philemon happened to own a slave named Onesimus, who one day decided to run away and flee his slavery, and it's very likely that he stole some money, probably a substantial sum, from Philemon's household on his way out. Tradition holds that he made his way to Rome, which is not a small thing. It was about a 1,300-mile journey to Rome from Colossae, and for a runaway slave who had no protection under Roman law, Anyone could have turned him in. Anyone could have done whatever they wanted to him. Uh, Without money, without some form of protection, he was really risking his life getting there. When he gets to Rome, and we're not sure whether this was intentional or totally a, a coincidence, but he finds Paul somehow. They cross paths, and Paul leads this runaway slave named Onesimus to Christ. After Onesimus becomes a Christ follower, he stays with Paul and proves to be a very helpful person, somebody who takes care of Paul, because at the time that he finds Paul in Rome, he is in prison under house arrest because of his faith. And so Paul being an older man in house arrest really needs a lot of help. And so Onesimus hung out with him and became valuable to him. But over time, as Onesimus was being rooted in the faith, Paul realized he can't just leave this huge piece of unfinished business hanging in his life. And so he decides to send Onesimus back to Philemon to make things right between him and his former master. He doesn't send him alone because he is still a runaway slave. It's dangerous for him. And so he sends one of the other uh, co-workers he had with him, a man named Tychicus, to travel with Onesimus. <laughs> it's a mouthful, isn't it? So Tychicus and Onesimus travel together from Rome to Colossae, And as they travel, they're carrying two letters at least with them. One was a letter to the church in Colossae, which we now know in our Bible as the Book of Colossians. And the other letter, a shorter letter, was this letter that we now have in our Bible called Philemon. So that's the historical setting uh, of the occasion of the writing of this letter. And I want to now dive straight in and look at a number of questions that I hope, and I I believe this letter raises, that I hope will cause you to reflect a little bit about your own life and the way that you live out your faith. The first of these questions is, do you have spiritual blind spots? and Do you know what they are? In verse 1, he writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. That phrase, fellow worker, is actually a translation of the Greek word synergos from which we get the English word synergy. It's literally working together for for a common end. And it it describes um, two people who just work in sync together, uh, like a really well-oiled machine. And Paul reserves that term for a very select group of people who are especially significant in the establishment of his ministry. He uses for people like Priscilla and Aquila, for, for Mark and Luke. And so these are not just anybody. They are people who are in his inner circle, of those most valuable to him in ministry, and he uses this word to address Philemon. So Philemon is clearly someone who is a man of standing in the Christian community, who is well-regarded by Paul, and yet it begs the question, how does a man who is an accepted Christian leader continue to own slaves after he becomes a Christ-follower? I don't want to just gloss over that question because I think it really um, points at something important in the way most of us live out our faith. You know, a lot has been written by, by, by scholars um, trying to differentiate ancient slavery, especially in the Roman era, with the chattel slavery that existed in the, in the, the antebellum south in the United States. And those differences are valid. I mean, the, the slavery we think of in American history is based largely on race, and there were a lot of of terrible things that happened there. Roman slavery had multiple pathways for ascension for a slave to come out of slavery into freedom. And yet, some of these scholars write about it almost as if to say, don't worry about it, don't sweat it. Ancient slavery wasn't really all that bad. And it seems to be their way of saying slavery continues in the New Testament. It's addressed almost as a a fact of life. And yet, I'm still bothered by that, and I, I don't think there's any reason to be an apologist and somehow explain away that slavery wasn't that bad. Let's be honest. Slavery is slavery. And it wouldn't matter to you or, or, or me. Neither We wouldn't want to be a slave in either context because the ownership of one human being by another is always morally reprehensible. It's always wrong, and it's not the way God intended human beings to order their world. The fact that some Christians in the early church Continue to have slaves even after they're following Christ is problematic and and I see no need to just whisk that away and go well don't worry about it it wasn't that bad. It is bad here 's the thing though let's zoom out a little bit and get some perspective. see people often think about the early church almost in terms of like it was perfect, it was the golden age of the church when you ask a lot of um, people who are about to graduate from seminary and start the ministry, hey, what kind of church do you want to have? Many of them with great zeal and vision will say, I would love to have a New Testament church. Almost as if to say the early church had no problems. It was this perfect church, and it's just gotten worse from then. I don't think that's true. From the very start of the church, the idea of church, it's always been comprised of imperfect, broken people. People who, on the one hand, genuinely and legitimately did love God, but on the other hand, still held on to some really serious sin issues in their life. And and that creates tension for me, but before we condemn the early church as being full of hypocrites, I mean, how can they have slaves when they're still Christians? And that's serious. I don't want to defend them in any way. That is a big problem for me. And when I look at it, it creates terrible tension. And yet I see the same thing continuing today. Listen, slavery back then was a fixture of the ancient world. The entire economic system of the ancient world was built on slavery. That doesn't defend it or justify it. I'm saying this is not just a moral issue. The entire world as they knew it, the the thing that caused countries to move, was built on the assumption of slavery. At one point, scholars estimate Two-thirds at a minimum, and up to 90% of the population of the Roman Empire, was slaves. I, I just think, let that number sink in. Two-thirds to 90% of the entire population of the Roman Empire was slaves. There was a, a proposal once put forth in the Senate, because people couldn't tell who was a slave and who was a free person, because they, they weren't necessarily divided. And the slaves in the, the ancient world could go to the market, run errands for their master... And so uh, people couldn't tell who was who, and one senator came up with an idea, why don't we put special clothing on the slaves just so we can distinguish free men from slaves? And then after they thought about it, the Senate shot it down immediately because they realized once we put the same uniform on all the slaves, they will realize they outnumber us 10 to 1, and there will be a rebellion in the land. And so they shot that down. So in other words, I'm, I'm saying that to illustrate that just as a fish doesn't know it's wet, a person in the ancient world would have seen slavery not primarily as a moral issue, but as an economic one. It just, it sucks to be a slave, but it's part of the world that we live in. Please understand, I'm not saying that to excuse it away or to minimize the moral issue. I'm saying that's the way a person living back then would have seen it. They would have been blind to the fact that there was such a clear, and I'm not suggesting there was such things. They knew, more. They, early philosophers knew that slavery had philosophical and moral issues. But you would dismantle the entirety of society to abolish slavery at that time. I still think that's what needed to happen, but let's not minimize just how ubiquitous the acceptance of slavery as a fixture in the world was back then. See, when the whole world accepts something as normal, it's really easy, even for people of faith, to be swayed by that, to say, I, it's hard for me to locate the moral issue there because everywhere I go, no one seems to have a problem with this. It's just the way it is. I, I think about how, how, like, there was a point in, in uh, America where people had this collective communal sense of shame over things like sex outside of marriage, that everyone knew it's happened for as long as people have been around but there was this sense in which sex outside of marriage was an illicit thing, a thing that you do in hiddenness. Yet today it's become so everywhere. Sex outside of marriage has become so commonplace. I I, I think it's hilarious when I watch movies and and to say to somebody, you're a virgin, is a legit accusation or insult. I mean, go find an average 20-something, or even a teenager these days, and go, hey, you're a virgin. I guarantee almost all of them will get defensive. They'll say things like, no, I'm not, because sex outside of marriage has become a non-moral issue for most of us. It's just the way it is. We are biological beings. Sex happens. That doesn't mean Bible is silent on the issue. It doesn't mean there's no moral component, but the way we experience it every day. I mean, do you even bat an eye when you see sex outside of marriage portrayed, even inferentially on a television show or a movie? You don't really think much about it because it's just everywhere, everywhere. I think about the fact that every time I'm in the city, I walk past a dozen beggars on the street. And I look at them, and there's all these, these words going through my mind, flying through my mind, like, well, if I give them just money, they're going to probably buy something bad with it. Or, there's all these thoughts, and so I walk past them thinking, I'm, I'm not really here to help right now. I, I'm going somewhere with my family. And I walk past them, and each time I do, I ignore the dozens of chapters and verses in the Bible that call me as a follower of the living God to do something directly to care for the poor. Not to build a church that cares for the poor, but for me personally to do something to help bear the burden of those who have nothing. And because everyone on the street is walking past that person, I find myself just caught up in the flow, and that homeless person, that human being with nothing, becomes a fixture, a background scenery, a prop. You see, what I'm trying to illustrate is not a way to defend what we're doing. I'm saying every one of us lives with blind spots, and those blind spots are made bigger because the world we live in is not a God-fearing, Bible-believing world. It doesn't frame its opinions of things in the way that, that Jesus is trying to get us to do through His Word. And so because the world sees everything a certain way, it's very easy for me to see it the same way. How many people go to church on Sunday and have such a heart filled with ideas of God and they go to work on Monday and they feel like, hey, there's a partition here. What, the way I conduct myself as a boss or as an employee, the way I play the game in this hustle, that has very little to do with my faith. This is my work life. That was my church life. I was a different person on Sunday morning than I am on Monday morning. And we don't really think much of it. And that's because the world permits so much of that. It it encourages us to join with everyone else and say, this is just how it is. I think that we need to identify and acknowledge spiritual blind spots. The first century Christians and the Christians in the antebellum South really had to confront the evil of slavery... That was a moral issue, but it was harder to really see it with urgency because it was just the way it was in the world. So I want to give you 10 seconds right now to reflect on this question. What spiritual blind spots do you have in your life? Here's a second point, a second question for us. How serious are you about accountability? You might just gloss over the introduction of some of these letters in the New Testament, but look at verse 2. It actually made me laugh when I I really paid attention to it. Paul addresses this letter in verse 2 to Philemon in verse 1. He says, this is a letter to Philemon, but it's also, I'm sure Philemon wished he could erase verse 2. Also to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. I I don't want you to miss that. He intends for Philemon to receive this as a personal letter, but he's also addressing it to Aphia, our sister. Most scholars accept that this is most likely Philemon's wife. You talk about the best accountability partner, this is a person who you're married to, because they are never shy to tell you what you're doing, right? And then Archippus, some people think that it might be his son, but Archippus was a well-known established church leader in the region as well. And so he might have just been the leader of the church in 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 Philemon's home. And then to the whole church that meets in that. So when you talk about the church in Colossae, for example, we're not talking about one church building with 300 people or something. We're talking about all the small clusters of uh, communities of faith that meet in different homes throughout the city. And one of those clusters of believers met in the home of Philemon. And so the intention of Paul was that this would be a letter read primarily by Philemon. It was addressed to him, but it would also be read by his wife, by the leader of the church, and by the congregation. See, Paul wasn't giving Philemon the luxury of privatizing this decision regarding Onesimus. This letter was a cover letter as Onesimus was returning to the house he ran away from because Philemon had a big decision to make. What are you going to do with this runaway slave? And he wanted the answer to be worked out, not in private, but he wanted it to be an an actual formative moment for his family and for the church congregation together. Because it matters how we choose to live our lives and align our faith with the way we actually live our lives That affects everyone around us, and it's meant to. Christianity was never designed to be a private, individual faith. It was always intended to be a faith best pursued and lived out in community. We grow best in community. So this was not just Paul being manipulative. He's making a very intentional decision for Philemon's benefit, but also for the benefit of his family and his church. See, when it comes to the decisions that most shape our faith and morality... We benefit greatly from working that out with our community of faith, with those closest to us. And yet it is in those very decisions we're most tempted to go into hiding, to push out other voices, and to make this a very private and personal individual choice. Those choices shape the kind of person we're becoming. And it's curious to me that the most important choices of our lives, so often we want to minimize the voices of others and how many others see what we're doing, or have an opinion on what we're doing. Though we try to keep these things private or hidden away, they rarely stay private because the biggest decisions of our lives are, are made visible eventually, and they have a ripple effect. They affect those closest to us. So whenever we're tempted to shout out other voices or to kind of go into hiding, you, you know, we've all had that friend who's starting to date someone, we're like, you, re- honey, you really should not be with that person. Dude, what are you doing with her? And we feel it, not because we're judging them, but because we're genuinely concerned. This is the wrong fit. There's no alignment here. And have you noticed, whenever you try to challenge a person about that, and they're really their heart is already sunk, they start to pull away from everyone. They dodge everybody. They don't want to hear it anymore. Sometimes you trade up for a whole new group of friends who are supportive of that decision. Whenever you sense that happening in yourself, Where there's a major decision in front of you and you find yourself instinctively wanting to shut out others, I hope an alarm goes off in your mind. Whenever a major public Christian figure falls morally, everybody comes onto the internet and asks the question who is holding this person accountable? The truth is, that person who fell could probably point to a handful of individuals and say, this was my accountability group. They were the ones who were supposed to keep an eye on me. The problem, though, is that that's a hand-picked group of people, and they only know about this person what they told them. True accountability, the best kind of accountability, the kind that actually helps us stay healthy and grow, is, lived through, is gotten through an, a life lived out in the open. In community with very little hidden, a person who has more public than private. I'm not saying that, that we should erase all privacy boundaries. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think whenever we are, we are too defined by our desire to remain private and hidden, we forfeit the power of the community's accountability in our lives. You know, we like to say we have accountability. Usually what we're doing is we're displaying the good stuff and we're hiding the dangerous stuff. And, and when all of that catches up to us, we wonder, oh, what happened to my accountability? I think what passes for accountability is too weak in the modern Christian world. Meeting together a few times a week to just make confession to each other, it's not enough. I really believe that what Paul is trying to engineer in Philemon's life is a picture of the kind of accountability that actually keeps us healthy. That we process our biggest decisions and dilemmas. In front of others knowing that it matters what we decide to do and it matters that we let other voices in so I'm gonna give you ten seconds to reflect on this what does accountability look like in your life right now and is it enough let me give you a third question have you earned the right to challenge others Take a look at verses 4 and 5, and then verse 7. Paul writes, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And the skipping to verse 7, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the heart of the Lord's people. Listen, Paul was about to issue a very big moral, and spiritual challenge to Philemon. You know, we we call it speaking into someone's life, and he is about to speak big time into Philemon's life. But notice that before he issues this challenge in Philemon's life, there is this foundation in Paul's life of praying faithfully for his friend Philemon. Excuse me. He's not just praying for Philemon about this issue. The indication, the suggestion is, it occurs regularly that in his prayers, in his regular practice of talking to God, Paul is lifting up his friend Philemon all the time. And part of that is not just asking God for things for Philemon, but he's just thanking God for Philemon himself. He's affirming this man. And then what, what's more, he's aware of the way that Philemon is conducting his life. There's a reputation or news that's followed him. And it's not because Philemon's famous. Think about this. This is the the ancient world, pre-internet or pre-telecommunications world. So in order for Paul, 1,300 miles away, to know anything meaningful about Philemon's life, that means that anyone who visited was passing through. He would ask after Philemon, try to get his news intentionally. This is about keeping in touch with the people in our lives. And here's a general, maybe another way of saying it is, intercession should come before intervention. Meaning, before we make the big challenge to speak into someone's life, it should be our practice that we are lifting them up before God and really doing our best to stay in touch with them. That this is, here's another way for me to say it, okay? If we don't show that much interest in a person's day-to-day life, if we're not curious about their news, about what's happening in their lives, then probably we shouldn't be that interested about their moral dilemmas either. It's funny how um, a moral issue or a juicy piece of drama will get everybody in the community out on their feet and engaged and involved. But the truth is, most of the time when that stuff isn't happening, we tend to become pretty disconnected and disinterested in what's happening to each other. The one thing I am grateful for about social media is it does give us a platform to at least have some basic pulse on what another person's life is like. But I think it needs to be more active than passive. We need to be keenly interested in one another's lives. So when it comes time to issue the kind of challenge, listen, words of strong challenge are best received from a real friend. Not someone who just suddenly got interested in my issue and wants to speak into it, but someone I really consider a part of my life. I, I was really rebuked by the Holy Spirit as I was writing this point, thinking, This is something I really need to grow in. So I want to give you 10 seconds to reflect on this question. How faithfully do you pray for and keep in touch with those you care about in your life? Let me give you a last question, then we'll close. On what basis do you make decisions in your life? When you look at verses 15 to 17, here's what Paul writes. Perhaps the reason he, meaning Onesimus, was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord." So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. I want you to understand how big a thing Paul was asking Philemon to do. I don't think there's any real parallel in our modern lives for the dilemma that Philemon was facing. I was just thinking about any analogies, and there are no really good ones, but I was just thinking how like, I wave to my mailman all the time. He's somebody I kind of know. Like, we smile at each other. I I know what time of the day he comes. And so, yeah, I kind of know him. But it'd be weird if suddenly he came to my door and said, Hey, you know what? My wife and I are having trouble. Do you think I could stay with you for like six months? Suddenly, I'm having to rewrite the operating system of who this guy is to me. And it's not just an interpersonal thing. I'm like, I don't understand what's happening here. I'm having to redefine how I see this other human being, and you're asking me to go from you're my mailman to you're a guy living in my house. I I don't know how to do that very easily. In Philemon's world, a runaway slave had no rights. He was the lowest rank in society at that time. And Paul was asking him to take him back, not just as a returned escapee, but as a brother, an equal, and a, a a person who is a free man, precious to him. I, I, and I, keep in mind too that he stole a lot of money, likely from Philemon. So he's facing this really difficult decision. This is not just a personal reconciliation. It wasn't like Philemon and Onesimus were two buddies who got into fight, got into an argument, and then parted company. It's not that at all. Really, this represents a complete disruption in the way that Philemon thinks of society as being ordered. And here's the thing. This decision would make no sense to any of Philemon's peers. If he takes Onesimus back on these terms, it's crazy talk in those days. And what it would eventually do is it would disrupt his entire household because Philemon, as a wealthy man, had more than just one slave. He had a household of slaves running everything, including his business. And so if the slaves who are watching very attentively watch Onesimus, who everyone knows, hey, where's Onesimus? Oh, him. He stole a bunch of money from the master and ran away. If they see this guy come back and all of a sudden he's no longer in chains, but he's like Philemon's buddy, an equal, a co-laborer, What does that do to every other slave in Philemon's house? What are we doing serving like idiots? There's no penalty for running away. Let's all leave. In other words, this is Paul's interesting way of directly tackling the the preservation of slavery in Philemon's household. It's his way of saying, Philemon, I want you to take a hard look at this practice, this tension you live with, because it is wrong for you to own other human beings, for you to build a business and a household on the assumption that you have some right inherently to possess another human life. And by asking and challenging Philemon to accept Onesimus back as a brother because of Christ, because they are now now no longer just defined by societal norms, but the gospel has redefined their relationship. And Paul knows this is going to completely upend the concept of slavery, at least in Philemon's household. But not just there, because his wife, the church leader, and the entire congregation, all of whom participate at some level in the system of slavery, are going to watch this too. And they're going to realize Paul is doing something disruptive for all of them. He's forcing them to rethink this very important issue in their lives. If Philemon decided to ignore Paul's challenge and punish In fact, even if he chose to have him put to death, the law and all of societal public opinion would have been on his side. They would have said, yeah, you did the right thing. What else would anyone do? You're supposed to do that to a slave who steals from you and runs away. So do you see that the dilemma Philemon's in is the law, what is allowed, public opinion, which is what is acceptable, are both on the side of doing what naturally comes. Just punish the guy, teach him a lesson, so that none of the other slaves in my house get uppity. Paul is pushing a different thing. And look, in verses 8 to 9, he says, look, I could also be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, but I'm not going to do that. I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. As an apostle, Paul had considerable authority in Philemon's life, but what he's saying is, I'm not going to pull rank on you. I don't want you to do this because I'm a church leader telling you. I want you to, do, to make your decision based on a new rule of life. You could easily do what the law allows. You could easily do what society would accept. But what does the love of God require of you in this? What does the gospel that has saved you require of you now in this very disruptive decision? I want to give you 10 seconds to think through this in your own life. What rule of life drives your decisions? Do you base your life's decisions and conduct on what is allowed by the law, what is acceptable by the world around you? Or is there a different law at work in your life, a different rule? Boy, there's so much I wanted to say more about Philemon. And look, if you're interested in going deeper, let me know. I would love to have a Zoom meeting where we just open up the book of Philemon and talk through some of the other stuff that wasn't part of this, didn't make it into the message. But I hope that what did make it into the sermon challenged you at some level. Because I do believe that the early church lived with the hypocrisy and the moral evil of slavery. And over time, the influence of the gospel being worked out in people's lives actually had a big role in dismantling the practice of slavery in much of the the ancient world. It didn't get rid of it completely. It persisted well into the the centuries to follow. But it was nothing like two-thirds or 90% of the population. And I really do believe that the Word of God properly applied gives dignity to every human being. It cannot support something as heinous as slavery. So I hope you're challenged by this idea that it's not just what we believe, but what we do and how we do that in the light of a a whole open community. That makes a big difference. You may remember a guy named Timothy who was Paul's right hand, his protege, and he was the heir apparent to Paul's ministry. He went on to become the bishop of the church that met throughout the city of Ephesus, one of the biggest cities in the area. And after he died... The man who took his place, the early church father Ignatius records, was a man named Onesimus. Now, there's no conclusive proof that it's the same Onesimus, but there's a pretty good likelihood that this former slave was actually reconciled to Philemon and went on to become a church leader and later a bishop in one of the major churches in his world. The book of Philemon doesn't record for us what Philemon decided. It leaves it kind of open-ended. But it's possible that history reveals to us that when a person decides to align his life with his faith, there's a ripple effect. It makes a difference. A runaway slave becomes a brother and even a bishop. How are you going to decide to shape and live your life? How will you close the gap between what you believe and the way you choose to live radically in this world? It will make a difference for you. But rest assured, it's also going to make a big difference for a lot of other people who you touch. Life is filled with tensions and dilemmas and big decisions. And the world around us will not help us live for Jesus at all. It has no interest in Him or His kingdom or His gospel. But if we have the courage and faith and humility to live as we profess, I think it would change the way the world looks. It will change the destiny of our lives and the lives of others. May God give the people of Harvest the will and the humility to live what we believe and to do it in the openness of accountability to each other as a family of faith, an open community. May this be the gift God gives us as a church. May you be blessed now and forever in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.